You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. Join us now for Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. When I think of great voices, I think of Bishop Sheen. And it was his voice that touched the hearts of millions of souls through his radio addresses and his television programs. And we'd like to share a few of those reflections with you today. So I would invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family. I hope you are well, and I want to thank you for joining me for another week of sharing the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, Many years ago, Archbishop Sheen gave a talk entitled, Happiness is a Rainbow. And uh, when we hear the word rainbow or think of rainbow, uh, sometimes, of course, there's mixed messages there, Uh, you know. And, uh, of course, everyone has their opinion of the rainbow. But uh, Fulton Sheen, of course, um, was speaking about rainbows and happiness many years ago. So I'll let him uh, deliver this message, and I'm sure you'll be happy by the end of it. But uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about humor today also. And so uh, Bishop Sheen, during the second half of his uh, this uh, hour, we're going to share a message that he gave many years ago about Christian humor. So I just ask you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Just before I came out here, friends, on this program, the program director up in the booth shouted down that the third candle on the right was crooked. So we asked the angel to come and straighten it, which the angel did because the angel hates anything that is crooked. But as he was straightening the candle, there came back to my mind the memory of of an old Monsignor in St. Louis. He came out one morning for Mass and found four candles lighted. He should have had only two for a low Mass. And he called the altar boy and he said, "Uh, Who told you to light four candles? The altar boy says, Mrs. McEntee. Where is Mrs. McEntee? She's down in the front pew. The old Monsignor said, Will you go down and give Mrs. McEntee three swift kicks? One for Moses, one for me, and one for Elias. (laughs) You have the title, Happiness is a Rainbow, but this does not come in at the beginning of this show. Only about the middle of it will we find out why happiness is a rainbow. 
But I must tell you at the beginning why we chose this particular subject. It's because there's so much gloom in the world. I do not mean light, uh, frivolous gloom, like a, a poor widow who was visited by the insurance company after the death of her husband, and uh, he gave her a check for $50,000. And the insurance agent said, I'm sure you're very sad after having lost your husband. And she said, well, I would give $5,000 to have him back. <laughs> I'm not referring to that kind of gloom. Nor even the gloom of a, of a mother who already had three children, and she was about to have her fourth. And she said to the doctor, she's, oh, she said, how I dread this. The doctor said, well, you had no trouble with the other three? Oh, she says, that isn't the problem. It's the future PTA meetings that I dread. <laughs> now, the gloom I'm talking about is much more serious. I've heard many people remark that, uh, notice now when you see people on the street how sad they look. And there's the gloom of the theater, the gloom of the songs of the young. For example, at 15, boys and girls singing, I lost the love life of my life. But the more serious things, like, for example, uh, the novel of François Sagan, Bonjour, Tristesse, imagine that. Hello, Sadness. How are you, Gloom? Then the other great dramatist, Camus, who wrote The Plague. Remember, it was the story of a dedicated doctor in northern Africa, Dr. Rieu. And during this pestilence, he spent himself and was spent in his laboratory in caring for patients to stop the pestilence. It was abated, but he knew that it was in the furniture, it was in the clothing, it was in houses, and would break out again. So the gloom of the play was, that's all life is. It's meaningless. And all of our evils are going to constantly reoccur. That's our modern gloom. Another novelist, Cossack. The city beyond the river. Now he, he gives this in a kind of a parable. Namely, here on one side of the river is a factory. This factory takes great big rocks and grinds and grinds them up into tiny little stones. Then it, when it gets tiny little stones, it bakes all the little stones together and gets a great big rock. Then they send the rock over to a factory on the other side of the river, which grinds the rock up into little stones, then bakes them together in a great big rock and ships them back to the first factory. With the gloom of uh, adultery, homosexuality, murder, and violence that one sees in the theater, one really wonders if we're not like pigs who thinks that the farmer that's seated at a table does not know reality. Is not the gloom today very much like Deaf men 
inviting an orchestra. No wonder the great psychiatrist Carl Menninger said that. He said it is not so much that there are no joys today, it's the fact that there is no hope on account of our gloom. Now, how did we get that way? How? Well, I'm going to try to give you an illustration of how. And we will diagram. This is the way we live. We live on a horizontal plane of the flat surface of space and time. We're working out, we work out our economic livelihood, contribute to social betterment, and so forth, on this level. But we know that it's quite inadequate. So, to cover up this inadequacy, we know that because the loves here do not completely satisfy, that we have to go out to a love beyond. So, life is completed by a vertical line. Namely, there must be a beauty, as Thompson put it, that leaves all other beauty pain. A love we fall just short of in our love. So this is man, and he's almost at the center of it. And it, this is normal, and we will show later on that these two are both involved in human existence. But we're trying to explain gloom. Here we started with normal human life. The gloom came in by eliminating this. Our life is limited solely to the pain of the secular. Now, when man has only this flat surface here, he gets sick and tired of it. So what does he do? He, this is man here. You know I can't draw, but that's, I always put, I always tell you what I'm doing. That's man. So that man, man tires of this flat surface of life. So he begins pulling it up around himself. And lo and behold, he gets locked in. And he gets locked in in two ways. He gets locked in socially in a closed society, which is Marxism and communism. And he gets locked in psychologically. So that his life is nothing but made up of an analysis of his fears and anxieties and dreads. That's the reason modern man is, is sad and, and tragic. He's thrown off the vertical. But I'm not here to explain to you the, the gloomy side. I want to tell you now how to get out of this gloom and how we can recover happiness. And the key to it is the rainbow. How is the rainbow made? The rainbow is made by light shining through rain. The rainbow is the child of storm. Comes out of the womb of darkness. 
Every drop of rain, we'll get back to gloom in a minute. See, the rain is the gloom. Every drop of rain is a prison. And when a ray of light strikes the raindrop, which is the prison, breaks up into the seven rows, rays of the spectrum. And if you could take all of those rays back again, you'd get a pure ray of light. Now, the rain strikes other things. Strikes the rose, strikes the lily. And uh, it does not, however, like the raindrop, throw back every ray. It absorbs some, keeps them for itself. That's the difference in colors between red and blue flowers and the like. But notice that both of them are selfless. The, the rose does not take all of the rays of light, just some. Here's back others. The raindrop doesn't take any. So the raindrop is what? The raindrop is a combination of sorrow and laughter, of tears and a smile. There's a bit of sadness. Too much sadness makes gloom. There's darkness, but there's also light. The rainbow, therefore, tells us that light itself is made up of both a little bit of sadness and a little bit of joy. The two are mixed, like that vertical and horizontal line. And these are specifically human, namely the tear and the smile. You never find a smile in the animal kingdom. Never. I know hyenas have their mouths open, but they don't laugh. A horse really doesn't give a horse laugh. You find laughter only when you come to man. And you find tears only when you come to man. And you find the both mingled in man. Why do you find a, a smile and laughter only in man? Well, what is laughter? Now, I'm going to give you a definition. It's not a bit funny. But it, it really is the explanation of laughter. Laughter is the unexpected juxtaposition of two ideas. Juxtaposition of two ideas. Let me think of a pun. A little uh, girl was visited by the neighbor. And the neighbor said to the little girl, what are you going to do when you get as big as your mother? The little girl said, diet. <laughs> well, thanks for laughing. Otherwise, I couldn't prove the point. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed. Now, why did you laugh? You see, you had to have two ideas simultaneously. You had to have, first of all, the idea of big as physical size. And secondly, you had to have the idea of big as age. Now, if a box is filled with pepper, it can't be filled with salt. If we were material creatures and we were filled with one idea, we couldn't be filled with the other at the same time. So that laughter is an indication of the fact that we are at the borderland of matter and spirit, both. I might add, too, that the ideas that are juxtaposed, they have to be unexpected. If you knew this, you wouldn't have laughed, except for politeness, for which I thank you. <laughs> now, tears, tears exactly the same way. 
You don't begin to cry and then get a telegram about the death of a friend. First of all, you have the idea. Then after you get the idea of sorrow, then comes the tears. So that gloom is an exaggeration. But there's a place, however, for something that is sad. Happiness is a rainbow. It's not just all laughter. It's not just all tears. The problem is which comes first. Now think this out for yourself. Which do you think comes first? Are we first of all to laugh and then to cry? Are we first of all to weep and then to laugh? Here, as we answer these questions, we hit upon two distinct philosophies of life. One philosophy of life, which is the Christian, is this. First the fast, then the feast. The other philosophy of life is first the feast, and then the hangover. <laughs> The, the Christian philosophy of life is, therefore, first, you have to have the rain before you can have a rainbow. It's the light shining through the rainbow, shining through the, the drop that makes the rainbow. And this is what our blessed Lord said. Woe to you that laugh, for you shall weep. Imagine. He didn't mean that we shouldn't laugh because... He himself teased the apostles, asking where they were to find bread when he knew very well where they were to have it. And it wasn't because he went around glum, because he said, when you fast, he said, he said, anoint your face, put oil on your hair, so that you'll appear to men not to fast. It was therefore not on account of gloom, it was rather the fact that reserved the great happiness for the end. There's a little bit of self-discipline at the very beginning. That's the Christian philosophy of life. A little discipline, a little correction of self, and then at the end, joy. Now, the other philosophy of life is that first you start with laughter, with pleasure, with joy, and then where do you end? Did you ever read the story of uh, Oscar Wilde? The portrait of Dorian Gray. You know, I uh, I forgot to give a signal to my angel before about uh, cleaning my backboard, but he this time I gave the signal quite unwittingly, and lo and behold, the angel did. If you turn over the blackboard now, you'll see it. See, it's all very clean. See, isn't this wonderful age we live in? <laughs> well. Oscar Wilde was the type of man who started with a feast. He determined that his life was going to be led aesthetically and not ethically. In other words, there will be no concern for what is right, what is just, what is good, or what is evil. 
It is only whether or not it gives pleasure. So this story, the portrait of Dorian Gray, is a kind of an autobiography. This handsome youth has his portrait painted. And in that painting, he stands in awe of his promise, handsomeness, virility, gaiety, and gladness. A portrait normally has timelessness about it. Our portrait is painted at a certain age, and that's the age the portrait remains. But in the story of Oscar Wilde, it's the portrait that grows old, and it's Dorian Gray, the young man who remains young. So that as he lives his life of pleasure, starting with the feast, he never changes. He's always the aesthetically beautiful and lovely. But that portrait, week by week, month by month, year by year, it ages, wrinkles become senile. All of the remonstrances of conscience, all of the inspirations of the spirit that he spurned, all of the evil that he did, and all of its excesses seem to be drawn each day as if some invisible brush were painting over that portrait. This was the real Dorian Gray. At the end, he had nothing. He saw what he was. And he couldn't stand it any longer. And he takes a knife to plunge it into that portrait. Servants come in sometime later. They see hanging on the wall the portrait of a handsome, young, promising youth. And at the bottom of the portrait, Dorian Gray with a knife in his heart. He had started with a light instead of the raindrop. So in answer to the gloomy dramatists and novelists who call the garbage pale and the excesses of life reality, may we say that they have a point, but they've exaggerated it. There's both in life, and that's what makes it wonderful and great. Just as in weaving, there's a warp, and a wolf. There is a line of sadness, and there's also a line of gladness. There's the horizontal stitch, and there's the vertical stitch. And the makers of these great tapestries, like the Goblin tapestry, Never work from the front 
that maybe you do your needlework. They have before them just the image, the portrait, of what they want to portray. But they work from the back of the tapestry, not from the front. And they weave one thread after another, the two. The light, the raindrops. And finally, when it's all finished, then they look at what they've done. They started behind where they could not quite understand the mystery. But they finished by understanding the fullness of light. Cab put it well, describing that manner in which these tapestries are made. My life is but a weaving. Between my God and me. I may but choose the colors. He worketh skillfully. For oft he chooses sorrow. And I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper. And I the underside. So the true philosophy of life then becomes Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Unless there's the Good Friday in life, there will never be the Easter Sunday. Unless there is the cross, there will never be the empty tomb. And when I look at the sky, I see exactly the same lesson taught. Happiness is a rainbow. Well, I hope this has not been a sad story for you. I hope it's been nothing but gladness and joy because it paints that way. I'm a little sad because I have to leave you. But with joy, I say, bye now. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my dear Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me again for a little bit of, uh, I'd like to say, our catechism class. And um, no matter what uh, Bishop Sheen spoke about, he would always point to the faith and uh, bring our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into the conversation. And uh, that's what he encourages us to do each and every day, to uh, converse with our fellow man, but every opportunity we get, let us share the love of the Lord and um, share some of the gospel stories with our friends, family members, and sometimes complete strangers. So, uh, again, we have to do what we can. And Bishop Sheen was not ashamed to share his faith with the world. All right, uh, we need a little bit of humor uh, in the world, and um, Bishop Sheen knew that, and so he gave a reflection uh, on Christian humor, so I'd ask you now just to enjoy, uh, again, once again, the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Lord, grant that we may not take this world too seriously, 
but may live through it in the joy of Easter. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. conference I spoke a prayer and I thought since of a story for all who are worried about distractions. St. Bernard and a friend of his were out horseback riding and Bernard complained about distractions. His friend said, I never have a distraction. St. Bernard said, all right, you get off the horse. You're down on your knees, and let me see if you can say the Our Father without distraction. And if you can, I will give you this horse. He began the Our Father and got up to the words, Give us this day our daily bread. And he looked up at Bernard and he said, Can I have the saddle too? <laughs> In radio days, a woman wrote to me from, it was Utica, New York, and she said, I have been outside of the church for some years, and this particular evening, I was going out for a date. My hands and face were smeared with cold cream, and I knew it was time for you to appear on the radio, but I didn't want to smear the machine with cold cream. So I listened to you, and I went to confession, and I'm back in the church. I sent her a telegram, congratulations, a beautiful instance of how grace works through grief. <laughs> there has been one characteristic of this retreat that I've never seen equaled in any retreat I have ever given outside of a retreat to the Carmelite Sisters in San Jose, California. And that is the spirit of joy. This is the way a retreat should be. You're happy. So I've decided to talk about humor. <laughs> I'm going to talk about God's humor, I'm going to talk about our Lord's humor, and then I'm going to talk about our own humor. First of all, God's humor. What is the definition of humor? Humor is the ability to see through things. A person who does not see through things, we say he's thick. Now, God made the world with a sense of humor, first of all, because he intended that everything in the universe should be transparent, like a window pane. The mountain should tell us something about the power of God. The sunset, something of his glory. The snowflake, something of his purity. 
everything was to be a tell-tale. In those days before the fall, there was no prose. There was only poetry. Adam and Eve were poets. Remember Thompson's beautiful description of the day and the sunset. He compares the sun to the host in each morn. The priest, day goes to the tabernacle and takes from out it the host, raises it in benediction over the world, and then at night sets it in the flaming monsters of the West. That's the sense of humor. When, however, the fall came, then humor was lost. Poetry was no longer spoken, only prose. A mountain was just a mountain, a sunset was just a sunset, and a snowflake was just a snowflake. All the humor had disappeared in the universe. Men began to take, for example, gold very seriously. I wonder if there is anything that is so abusive of God's sense of humor as abortion. When one cannot see God in life. Well, God made the world with a sense of humor, not only because he made it transparent, but there is another and even more profound way in which God's humor was manifested itself in creation. And that is, creation has two sides. It has the serious side, which is the power of God, and then it has the lighter side, which is play. Did you know, for example, in the book of Proverbs, divine wisdom, which would be Christ, is ludens corum eo, only temporary, playing before him all the day. Playing. Creation is play. And what is play, and how does it differ from work? Work has a purpose. Play has no purpose. It's meaningful, but it's without purpose. When I was a boy, my mother, I would be out playing baseball. My mother would call me, and she would say, go over to the grocery store and get a can of gasoline or something, kerosene, whatever it was. And I said, listen, why can't you wait until I finish the game? And she said, well, what difference does it make? You run to the grocery store, you run around the bases. It's just the same. Well, I didn't know the answer, but when I got smart, <laughs> I read St. Thomas. And St. Thomas says the essence of play is absence of purpose. And that's what I was doing when I was playing the game. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to remind you about that text of St. Thomas. So there was play in the universe. And the great thinkers of the world have seen this. For example, Plato it says that the Logos, which is divine wisdom, holds the earth in its hands as a ball. The Middle Ages used to picture the divine child holding the earth as an apple in his hand. And Xenophon said that all the great works of God are accompanied with play with lightness. 
And remember the king of Syracuse who wanted all of his gold weighed? And he went to Archimedes? And what was Archimedes doing? This great physicist, the atomic physicist at the time, he was in the tub. He was playing with his ducks. <laughs> or whatever one plays with in tubs. And he, de he developed the law of the displacement of water and was able to measure weights. And he got it from play. God must have had a great deal of play, for example, in making zebras. <laughs> Hippopotamuses. <is his. laughs> Another funny thing, funny, funny animals and funny instincts, insects. I think they're all part of the, the play of God. And if, if we hadn't sinned, perhaps we'd be out gambling in the field, very much like the land. But this is the essence of humor from the point of view of God. There's play in the universe. And God, therefore, laughs at those who take to the universe too seriously. Twice in the psalm, God laughs. He laughs at all the American philosophers who say he is dead. Yes. It's a kind of a, a laughter, a, a mockery, but it's there. Learn then to see the universe, and you have more opportunity for it here than we do, because it's very much easier to see God on this mountain out here than it is in neon lights on Broadway. Chesterton says Broadway is a wonderful place for men who cannot read. <laughs> See how your Joseph Mary Plunkett expressed the playfulness of creation. I see his blood upon the rose and in the stars the glory of his eyes. His body gleams amid eternal snows. His tears fall from the skies. I see his face in every flower. The thunder and the singing of the birds over his voice. And carbon by his power, rocks are his written words. All pathways by his feet are strewn. And so on. Up to that point, I was reciting that the Eucharistic Congress here in Dublin years ago. I know that point as well as I know the man. I was talking without notes. And just before I came to the poem and the prepared ideas, I threw out the line, Ireland has never recognized any other king but Christ and no other queen but Mary. Well, you can imagine how the Irish like that. So, I said they like it too much. This will be misinterpreted, politically. And so I began to scold myself. I went into this poem of Joseph Mary Plunkett at this point, and I scolded myself so much that when I got to that line where I broke, I forgot. I was not paying very much attention really to what I was saying. And I really forgot it. I paused for that second that seemed like an eternity, and 
I said, I'm sorry, I forgot. And I saw tens of thousands of jaws drop in disappointment. So I had to get out of the difficulty. And it is peculiar what you think about in days like that. There came to me a line of Patrick Henry. Not the one that almost everybody knows. Patrick Henry said, when you're in difficulty in an oration, throw yourself into the middle of a sentence and trust to God Almighty to get you to the other end. So I began talking. I said, I'm glad I forgot. Didn't what I was going to say, so I started again. I'm happy that I forgot. I didn't know, so I started again. If I had ever prayed to have forgotten anything, I should have prayed to have forgotten these lines of Joseph Mary Plunkett. I think there's beautiful symbolism in the forgetfulness. And that is that standing on the anvil of Ireland's soil, one should be able to hammer and forge out the sparks of his own poetry and not be dependent even upon a magnanimous soul like Joseph Mary Plunkett. <laughs> Well, when I finished, the chairman, an archbishop was in the chair, he said, that was a marvelous trick of oratory, pretending you forgot. <laughs> I didn't pretend. <laughs> it was very real. So, learn to see God in all creation in the cosmos. God plays in his creation. So much beauty. Turn everything into a prayer. Sacramentalize everything. Well, that's the humor of God. The transparency of the universe and play. Now we come to the humor of our blessed Lord. Think of how much humor is in the parable. You know that our blessed Lord never took anything seriously except the salvation of the soul. He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? As Thompson said, he, he flung the world a trinket at his wrist. That's all it was. So when he saw sheep and goats, he didn't see sheep and goats. They were transparent. He saw the last gesture with a lightning flash from east to west. And the coming judgment. Wine in old bottles, wine in new bottles. Patches on clothing. Camels, sheep, goats, dogs. Everything reminded him of something else. What a wonderful mind. He sees a farmer going out, sowing seeds. The kingdom of God is like that farmer. These are fishermen casting in there. The kingdom of God is like these fishermen. The universe was back again where it was when God created it. It was a romance. It was a mystery that was constantly revealing the eternities. Then take, for example, well, his attitude toward the Syrophoenician woman. Remember the Jews called the Gentiles dogs. Now we must know that in order to understand the, 
Syro-Phoenician woman who asked for a miracle. And our blessed Lord turned to her because he had been talking to the apostles. They were in Gentile country. He was in the dog country. The apostles hated the, the Gentiles, the dogs. So our blessed Lord said to this woman, it's not fit, is it, that the bread of children should be thrown to the dogs? But when he said it, you know that he must have winked. <laughs> and he said to this poor Gentile woman, it's not fit, is it, to throw the bread of children to dogs? He wasn't talking to her. He was talking to the apostles. And she knew it because she immediately shot back but even the wealthy to the crumbs that fall from the master's table. The divine comeback. Then he humor about a plank in an eye. We do not see the speck in our own eye, but we see the plank in the neighbor's eye. The camel passing through the eye of an eagle. Some of our modern scripture scholars who lack humor think our Lord could never have said that. First of all, because there's no possibility of a camel passing through the eye of a needle. So they say maybe it was a gate in the city and the camels had great difficulty getting through the gate. No, this was Semitic humor. The Hebrews had no superlatives. When Joshua went into Jericho, he and Caleb brought back the report that the walls reached up to the heavens, and the men were as numerous as grasshoppers. I used to call them hopper grasses when I was a boy. But the men were as numerous as grasshoppers. Now, they weren't as numerous as grasshoppers. The walls didn't go up to the heavens. They just meant they were very high. So Semitic humor was exaggeration. And our blessed Lord was here exaggerating in order to bring home a truth. It's very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then, the delight that he took in children at play. As he walked along the streets, he saw some children playing weddings and others playing funerals. He noticed that some children wouldn't join in the wedding, some wouldn't even get in the funerals. <laughs> And he said, he said to the Jewish people, he said, you're just like that. He said, you won't rejoice with those who are rejoicing. You won't weep with those who are weeping. I can't satisfy you. If I'm as happy as those that are, who are at a wedding, you think I should be as sad as those who are at a funeral. The humor, therefore, was one in which he brought back the transparent universe of his father. And read over the scriptures sometime with this in mind, and you'll find this humor. Take, for example, when he had 5,000 to feed. And he said, uh, where can we get bread to feed these people? Now, when we were children, when you went and asked your father for a penny, and I went and asked my father for a penny or a nickel, where would I get a nickel? Why would I get a penny? We had 
had a penny, he had a nickel. Our Lord knew this was testing them, and, and they, they were so serious that Philip said, oh, well, 500 pennyworth isn't enough to feed this crowd. And Andrew said, I'll get a boy, he's got some bread. It was John who always went beyond the scene and said what was in the mind of our blessed Lord. So there was humor in God, there was humor in Christ, and look at the way he too drew out the disciples on the way to Amos. They said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what has happened these days? And our Lord said, what happened? Imagine what happened. So they went on and told him that Christ died, was crucified. Didn't he know anything about this? Really, when they came to their senses after Pentecost, they must have had a good laugh about it. Now we leave the humor of God, the humor of Christ, and we come to our own humor. And humor with us is divided into wits, comedians, and clowns. <laughs> the wit is the priest. The comedian is the victim. And the clown is both. The wit always makes someone else the butt of the joke. He's always on top. He's the holy man. The comedian, he's the victim of the joke. He gets slapped. We have two classic examples of this in the United States. Bob Hope is our great wit. And Jack Benny is our great comedian. He is the victim. Now we come to the clown. Who's the clown? The clown is the priest victim together. The clown is the man who shares the joy of the infinite laughing at the finite. The clown has a momentary triumph and then he steps in a bucket of paint. Climbs up a stepladder, pulls a roof on his head. Comes out with a broom and there's a searchlight on the ground. Great big white round circle. He takes the broom and tries to sweep away that light that moves and he never gets it swept away. And the poor clown is man who has a succession of Good Fridays and Easter Sunday. He's defeated, and he goes on to the next defeat and laughs. He's never down. Though he's always defeated. He's always victorious. As St. Augustine described, described our blessed Lord, Victor quia victima. He is the victor because he's the victim. And how often the victim wins our sympathy. That's something we have to remember in our spiritual life. When Joan of Arc was crucified, I mean, was burned at the stake. Those who had set the faggots on fire said, we have burned the saints. The victim had finally won. And I wonder if we are not intended to be clouds. Our Latin 
Latin vulgate is not very favorable to clowns because the Latin vulgate said avoid scurriditas. Scura in Latin is the clown. The Greek for Latin for clown is zany. Did you ever hear that expression, people being zany, clownish? I wonder if that's not what we're supposed to be. When St. Paul spoke of the foolishness of God, I wonder if with reverence Christ was not the supreme clown. Was going through a series of defeats, never conquered, and in the end, completely winning us because he's been the eternal victim. The foolishness of God means we're clowns in this life. Nothing ever completely depresses us. We're his. We obey his will, whatever it happens to be. As I once heard a, a Negro say, he said, there's a brick wall. He said, if the good Lord wills me to go through that brick wall, I'll do it, but he's got to make the hole. <laughs> and spiritual people have to be happy. There are no sad saints. There are saints in heaven who have been murderers. There are saints in heaven who have been alcoholics. There are saints in heaven who have been everything. But there's never been a sad saint. As a matter of fact, no one ever gets in the kingdom of heaven who gets old. No. <laughs> Unless you become, as a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And you're getting younger. The closer we get to God, God, the younger we become. For example, a child of 12 is younger than a child of 14 because he's two years closer to the source of life as parents. But we have another source of life than our parents, namely God. Well, the closer we get to God, the younger we become. Well, the closer we get to God, the younger we become. And that is why we call the day on which saints die, they're not Talitia, their birthday. We have only three physical birthdays in the church. Our Lord, the Blessed Mother, and St. John the Baptist. Our Lord, because he was divine. The Blessed Mother, because of her immaculate conception. And John the Baptist, because he was purified in his mother's womb. So the more spiritual we become, the younger we get. And the happier we get. All your wonderful people enjoying the nursery. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for another week of our study class together. And, um, you know, I like to say study because uh, Bishop Sheen uh, doesn't let us um, just sit and listen. He, of course, invites us to uh, participate and uh, a lot of these lectures were, uh, you know, instructional classes that he gave. Um, the one you just heard on Christian humor was from a priest retreat where he was giving instruction 
to priest and catechist. So uh, again, these are all things that we need to take to heart. And so uh, let us learn from Archbishop Shane uh, to truly bring humor into uh, many areas of our life. And um, again, scriptures ask us to be joyful. And so uh, let us not forget that. So thank you for joining me, and uh, we look forward to having you back next week. And so until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.